0: are real geniuses richard jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you he hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science cancer stem cells ketogenic diets and more here come the geniuses this is the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs
1: hello this is richard jacobs with the finding genius podcast i have a uh, david leahy uh, he's part of nephrology he's a, a professor in nephrology of medical director. Uh, he deals with acute dialysis at Loyola University. So David, thanks for coming. Sure. yeah. Tell me about your your work. Is it uh, purely clinical? is it research? is it a combination?
2: It's a combination. Um, you know I sometimes joke that you know I'm a dinosaur now. I mean, I am getting to the latter part of my career. but you know classically academic medicine was clinical teaching and research. And then when you got older, you became an administrator, and I guess yeah. I've I've kind of fit that mold. So I I do all four actually. I see a lot of patients, and uh, I I do research, and uh, of course teaching, which is part of academic practice. And then I'm the associate chief of staff for clinical affairs now at the Heinz VA, and so I'm I'm in charge of all the trainees.
1: No, oh, all right. What's been your experience over the many years? Have you focused a lot on dialysis or on uh just you know kidney diseases like where has been your focus?
2: Well, for the last thirty years, it's been diabetic kidney disease
1: oh, okay, well, diabetic kidney disease meaning uh i mean what what like what are some specific diseases that affect the kidney and do they all end in dialysis? do they not you know let's let's go through like the few of the major ones
2: okay, well. The reason I went into diabetic kidney disease is because diabetes has become so uh, prevalent in our uh, overindulgent world and the, in the Western world, anyway. You know, we eat too much, we get heavy, we get diabetic, and that's the most common cause of kidney disease. And uh, no, absolutely, you don't necessarily end up on dialysis. You can actually do well, but One thing we've learned in the last uh, several decades is that the patient really needs to be involved with the treatment plan. Uh, If it's just seeing the doctor once every three months or so, that's not going to work. I mean, the patient's got to be making lifestyle changes and taking care of themselves. So they have to watch their blood pressure, especially their blood pressure and their blood sugar, of course, if they're diabetic. And they have to lose weight, they have to exercise, uh, they have to practice good healthy habits. And uh, they can do quite well. Uh, not all, I mean, some are just unfortunately, seemingly genetically predestined to develop kidney failure. And, uh, but still you can, you can slow down the rate of progression. You can, um, you can still help them, but there are some people that just seem to have the wrong genes. And you can't change the parents they had. So that can be a difficult group.
1: Well, so how do you think that, uh, the various kidney diseases occur? Like what, what are the names of the top, you know, one, two or three ones that people get?
2: Okay. Uh, well in the Western world, let, let's just talk the us. Okay. In the United States, it's diabetes is number one. And then number two would be hypertension, high blood pressure. And hypertension also can complicate diabetic kidney disease. So, um, There is some overlap between those, but there are patients who have no diabetes and just have hypertension who develop kidney failure. So that's probably number two. And then number three, it would probably really depend on where you are in the country, what other factors, uh, what kind of practice you have, whether it's a referral practice or not. But we kind of lump together a large number of diseases, uh, which we call chronic glomerulonephritis. And these are inflammatory diseases of the, of the kidney that can lead to kidney failure. And then somewhere along there is also polycystic kidney disease, which is a genetic disease. But that's relatively uncommon. So, I mean, diabetes just kind of swamps everything now. It's, mm-hmm. it's the most common.
1: Well, I've understood diabetes, diabetes in terms, in terms of, of straining the beta, beta of the cells, cells in the pancreas. Of pancreas. They have to they put have out tons of insulin, insulin, and eventually and they, they lose their ability to do it. it. But what, but about, what the about the, the kidneys, kidneys specifically? specifically? What are the what effects, effects, effects that you've observed? observed?
2: Okay. Well, diabetes affects multiple organs, and the mechanisms are complex. But it seems the best way I, I know how to explain it is that early on in the course, it's the high blood sugar that causes the problem with the kidneys. And so this is the metabolic cause. But later on in the course of the disease, it's really the blood pressure more than the blood sugar that's important. And some people would argue even early on the blood pressure may be more important. And so this is the hemodynamic cause damage due to high blood pressure, basically. So you have damage from high blood sugar and damage from high blood pressure, and frequently, usually, of course, in combination. And in uh, some patients, that's going to lead to kidney failure. Now, the interesting thing is we know that only about one-third of diabetic patients develop kidney failure. And the other two-thirds will never develop kidney disease at all. Or if they have it, it'll be very mild. And maybe do something else, not diabetes. So why is that? And that's really, I guess, a million-dollar question. You know, when the Human Genome Project got completed, we were able to sequence the human genome, I think it was really thought that diabetes would be one of those diseases that we would find the genes for. And even if we couldn't necessarily do anything about it, we would know which genes they are that are predisposing patients to develop kidney failure. And it turns out that actually it's been quite disappointing. We have not really found clear-cut genes that are important. Uh, There are a lot of them that seem to be involved, but there isn't like a home run there. Just as an example of where we have found where the gene is important, we found the genes for polycystic kidney disease. I mean, that that was a known genetic disease. But we've also found the gene that predisposes to HIV nephropathy, kidney failure due to uh, uh, HIV. But what if well, it's, what if, so what if they, they go beyond the gene, gene? Um, um, you mentioned high blood pressure. So in the nephrons in so the, the kidney, you
1: know, they so probably have structure high blood pressure. may cause the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, filtration the filtration of nutrients, nutrients in and, and out of the you know, the nephrons themselves to be, to have a different driving force, to be stopped. I mean, maybe there's a, you know, an atherosclerotic effect in the uh, nephrons and they get clogged and shut off. I mean, you know, how do all those factors factor in You believe?
2: Well, okay. It's complex, but you know, the kidney is a complex organ. There essentially are four types of cells in the kidney. Uh, There are glomerular cells. Those are the filtering units. And they're tubular cells uh, that eventually, you know, uh, make the urine. Uh, and then there are blood vessels, vascular cells. And then there are interstitial cells that are cells that are in the substance of the kidney that aren't one of those other types of cells, uh, kind of the scaffolding cells of the kidney, if you will. And uh, so all of these can be involved with diabetic kidney disease. But classically, it's the glomerulus. It's the glomerular cells that are involved. And the glomeruli are the filtering units of the kidney. They're they're very interesting structures, and they have a couple features that predisposes them to damage. I mean, one thing is they is they filter the blood. So anything that's in the blood that shouldn't be there is gonna tend to damage the kidney, and that's certainly true of diabetes, where the high sugar really takes a toll on the kidney. Now, in terms of the hemodynamic factors, that's actually somewhat complex. And uh, I guess the best way to explain that is there's damage to the small blood vessels that lead to and from the glomerulus. And this eventually will lead to what's called ischemia, Decreased blood flow and oxygenation, and the glomeruli will scar and die.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Uh, What happens to the the glomeruli in the kidney under a high blood pressure situation if it's been happening for months or years? Like what happens to damage them?
2: Yes. Okay. So what's going on here is there's damage to uh, the small arterioles that lead to and from the glomerulus. Okay. Uh, The technical terms for these are afferent and efferent arterioles, but what they are is they're small arteries or arterioles take blood to and from the glomeruli they get diseased in diabetes in fact on a kidney biopsy you can see this very easily and uh, we think that this is largely due to stress uh, shear force stress uh, due to hypertension okay
1: so when these arterioles does that mean that the the glomeruli the cells that compose them will have compromised blood flow and then die off yes or is it literally the filtration and the integrity of the epithelium will be compromised?
2: Well, you know, there's several types of cells in the glomeruli. There are endothelial cells, there are um, mesangial cells, uh, epithelial cells, uh, sometimes called podocytes, and uh, they all seem to be involved. For a while, the epithelial cells or podocytes were kind of Thought to be the major cell type in the glomerulus that was diseased, but it's a little bit more complex than that. I think. I think all of these cells are diseased. Uh, the endothelial cells can be damaged by the shear force stress, the high blood pressure. Okay. And the podocyte damage. Uh, the the epithelial cells are sometimes called podocytes now. And uh, there, I think um, the metabolic effects are also important. I mean, one one thing that's important to keep in mind is that you know. When you talk about medical disease pathophysiology, people tend to kind of fall into camps a little bit. And that's true of diabetes, too. Some people kind of stress the hemodynamic uh, versus the metabolic and other people the other way. But the bottom line is that you can't get diabetic kidney disease without diabetes. So you can't get it with a normal blood sugar. They used to think you could, but nobody really believes that anymore. So, if somebody has diabetic kidney disease, they have diabetes, they have abnormal blood sugar. So that blood sugar is definitely playing a role.
1: How, how do you think the blood sugar is playing a role specifically in the glomerulus? Like has anyone been able to do a, a microdissection and look at the the cells in there and see if they're, uh, you know, somehow compromised or damaged by sugar?
2: Well, I will tell you there's again, you know, the the pathogenesis is complex, but one of the factors is the glucose actually will form what are called glycated end products. So you can kind of think of it as caramel formation, caramelization, because what happens is the glucose, which is a small molecule, will become this large glycated molecule that gets um, incorporated into the basement membranes of the glomeruli. And uh, one of the characteristic pathologic findings is thickening of the glomerular basement membranes. In fact, every diabetic patient with kidney disease gets that. And even those that don't have clinical diabetes, they have also thickening of these glomerular basement membranes. And this is due to accumulation of these glycated proteins. You also have alterations in the ability of the kidney to degrade basement membrane proteins. So it's a combination of increased synthesis and decreased degradation, and also um, Accumulation of abnormal proteins, as as well as um, accumulation of protein per se. So, in other words, you've got a quantitative and a qualitative problem with this. So, now there are other things that glucose can do. Glucose has effects on the production of oxidative uh, radical species, superoxide, hydroxyl radical, and so high glucose will cause oxidative stress to the kidney. So this is involved too, especially when you start talking about the tubular and especially interstitial kidney disease, there's definitely an inflammatory component. And so drugs that inhibit inflammation may also benefit patients with kidney disease. And just recently, there's been a whole host of Clinical trials that have been very fascinating because they show that if you inhibit uh, glucose transport into the tubular cells by what are called uh, sodium glucose cotransport inhibitors, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, cotransport 2 inhibitors, so SGLT2. There are a lot of SGLT2 inhibitors that are available for clinical use now, and they've been studied in clinical trials, and they really quite surprisingly, showed marked benefits in patients with diabetic kidney disease. And so how could this be? Well, they prevent sodium and glucose transport into cells. So you lose sodium and glucose in the urine. And one factor could certainly be the salt loss in the urine, which leads to a decrease in blood pressure, and that can be beneficial. But I believe, and I think a lot of people believe, that the prevention of the glucose uptake by the tubular cells is probably critical to their benefits, because the, these drugs have had benefits on the kidney that we just haven't seen with other classes of drugs.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the
0: link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
1: What do these drugs do, the SGLT, SGLT2 inhibitors? What What do they do specifically again?
2: Okay, so... What they do is they block the sodium glucose transport. Okay, so on the proximal tubule of the kidney, there's a transporter called sodium glucose co-transporter. So this transporter allows sodium and glucose to come into the cell. And uh, I mean, they're normally normally present. These transporters are there for a reason because we filter a tremendous amount of glucose and sodium uh, that need to be reabsorbed. By the proximal tubular cells, when you use these these transport inhibitors in diabetes, and even in patients without diabetes, by the way, there's some studies now showing benefits in patients without diabetes. This seems to really be protective to the kidney. I personally think a lot of this probably has to do with prevention of glucose uptake into the cell. So, uh, you know, back in my basic science days, we did a lot of studies, not so much in tubular cells, but in glomerular cells, showing all sorts of Abnormal things that occur when you bathe cells in high glucose. And it's not a good thing for cells to be exposed to high glucose.
1: With these inhibitors, are you essentially giving the uh, glomerular cells insulin resistance and also um, salt resistance? You're making them, uh, you know, again resistant to the effects of these two substances.
2: No, you know, first of all, the SGLT2 work on the tubules, not on the glomeruli. So. Um, oh, okay. Okay you know, you know, indirectly they may affect glomerular function. That has to do with a crosstalk between the tubular function and glomerular function. So they probably do tend to decrease the pressure in the glomerular capillaries. That can be a factor, but that's an indirect effect. So you can probably tell from what I'm telling you is that, you know, this isn't a simple answer <laughs> as to the fact yeah, that I have yeah. kidney disease. I mean, uh, you know, it's a very complex disease. And, uh, but what we know is that if you control sugar and you control blood pressure, that really helps. The studies with SGLT2 inhibitors really seem to indicate that if you prevent glucose uptake into these tubular cells, that seems to be very beneficial
1: as well. In your bio, it mentioned uh, acute dialysis. What's the difference between that and regular dialysis?
2: Okay. So uh, yeah, I used to be the acute dialysis director at Loyola. Our affiliate hospital. And patients who get kidney disease, and we get this question all the time from patients Am I going to get better or not? Am I going to get off dialysis? And it depends on what type of kidney disease they have. Okay, if they have chronic progressive kidney disease, it's reached the point of end stage kidney disease. The only way they're going to get off dialysis is if they get a transplant. At the other end of the spectrum are patients with acute kidney failure, and that is usually due to an acute illness. Most recently, we've been seeing this with COVID infection, and you can see it with any severe infection. That's probably the most common cause. The second most common would be ischemia, which is usually postoperative, and we still see cases that are due to contrast administration, Uh, so there are toxins such as contrast uh, that can cause it too. But these are acute illnesses, and the kidneys may shut down to the point that patient needs dialysis for a period of time, but they should get better and the patient should get off dialysis. So yeah, chronic kidney disease and acute kidney injury are very, very different things. Now, of course, in real life, things are always complicated. So we have a lot of patients who have chronic kidney disease that then will get superimposed acute kidney injury. So that's very common.
1: Hmm. So again, with this uh, with this particular type of dialysis, it's acute, so it's it's based just on situation. But is the dialysis itself longer, more frequent? Does it filter things that other dialysis doesn't?
2: No, not really. I mean, the dialysis actually is the same treatment. The only difference can be with acute kidney injury if the patient's in the intensive care unit which they frequently are. Uh, Sometimes we do prolonged dialysis therapies. In fact, we can even do it continuously. So we do it 24-7 until the kidneys recover. Now, as you can imagine, somebody who's on chronic dialysis would never tolerate that, okay? Though there is a form of chronic dialysis called peritoneal dialysis. You know, there are two forms of dialysis we do in chronic patients, hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. And peritoneal dialysis essentially does work 24-7 or can be set up to work that way. And the reason you can do that is, of course, the patient, you know, is walking around, is ambulatory, isn't hooked up to a dialysis machine, carrying on his or her usual life. And so you can actually come pretty close to approximating what the kidney really would do, i.e. filter blood and remove fluid uh, 24-7.
1: Yeah, I, I had heard peritoneal dialysis filters it from, I guess, the interstitial fluids, but traditional dialysis or hemodialysis to, you know, takes it from the blood. Has anyone come up with a, a combination method where there's a little bit taken from the interstitium, like peritoneal and a little bit from the blood or that well, like suck the person dry?
2: Well, okay. Remember when you do hemodialysis, you're removing from the blood, but then there's rapid transfer from the interstitial fluid. So essentially, you're ending up with the same thing. As a matter of fact, even with peritoneal dialysis, you're actually removing from the blood too, because the uh, peritoneal membrane has got you know blood vessels. And so you're getting diffusion out of the blood as well. The difference between the two treatments is hemodialysis is uh, a more rapid method to remove solute from the body. Peritoneal dialysis is slower, but if you're going to do it for 24 hours, seven days a week, that's fine.
1: And I guess it's probably is it better to do it slower? Is it uh, you know, if you try to pull off fluids too fast, can that be damaging to the person?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people think so. Okay, so hemodialysis is essentially flawed from a physiologic standpoint for the exact reason you say. Okay, if we bring a patient into a dialysis unit three times a week and dialyze them for four hours, which is about as long as most of them will stay, okay, at least in the yeah. United States. Okay, so we're trying to do all the work of the kidneys in 12 hours a week. (laughs) Mm. Well, you can imagine that leads to issues. In fact, it's really kind of amazing. It's as tolerated as well as it is. I mean, we have patients that we bring in all the time that we're removing four liters of fluid in four hours. Well, you know, who would make four liters of urine in four hours? I mean, it's just not going to happen. Well, you
1: also build up waste products for, you know, 48 hours. Then all of a sudden they're taken off Then you build them up and taken off and it's, very different profile from continuously uh, pulling them off through urine production and, and removal, you know?
2: Sure, absolutely. And, you know, people who believe in peritoneal dialysis, uh, they, you know, they point this out all the time. It's much more physiologic. It's much more like what normal kidneys really do.
1: Huh. Is there any innovation in the dialysis world or is it like uh, the whole technology that's, that's worked?
2: Good question. Unfortunately, not as much as we'd like. And I think this is one of the reasons that, trainees are not so fond of nephrology right now we're having trouble attracting trainees i mean that's not the only reason a lot of these things are driven by economics and i think trainees know that nephrology is hard work you work hard and the reimbursement is good but it's not as good considering the amount of work you have to do as some other specialties Uh, The other thing they know is that most of the dialysis units have been bought up by big proprietary dialysis companies, such as Fresenius and DaVita. And so those that have an entrepreneurial side, you know, in the past, 30 years ago, I mean, you could go out and start a dialysis unit. That's not so easy to do now, but you know, that's fine. Uh, You know, it's real easy to blame the trainees and say, you know, well, they don't want to work hard, but there's another problem that we have in nephrology, which is innovation. Nephrology essentially what we've done is we have made dialysis much safer than it used to be, but we really haven't changed it that much. Actually, you can almost think it's pretty analogous to the airline industry. Okay. When I was a kid, I'd get on a plane. Of course, when you're a kid, you never think anything's going to happen to you. And uh, but there was a plane crash a year in the United States back in the 1960s, 1970s. Every year we had a plane crash. Well, when was the last plane crash in the United States? So that it's going to be hard for you to remember. The airline industry has gotten much safer. But, you know, frankly, it's the same thing as it was when I was a kid. You know, in fact, it's worse in a sense because of all the security issues. But essentially, you're getting on the same kind of plane and, you know, going about the same speed. I mean, what happened to supersonic transport? You know, essentially, it's the same old, same old. It's just that it's much better. I mean, that's what dialysis says now. Dialysis has become a routine procedure. We don't expect patients to get sick during dialysis. Uh, We don't expect to have um, codes called or even rapid responses in the dialysis unit. I mean, it's really a quite safe procedure you know, it's like flying on an airplane. But what we really need is a new airplane. We need a new form of dialysis. Now, there have been some tweaks. A lot of people are now going home on hemodialysis. And they're dialyzing themselves five, six times a week at home for a couple hours a day, rather than coming in to a center. And uh, for people who can do this, I mean, they would never want to go back to a center. I mean, they love it. And uh, they can do it in the comfort of their own home, they don't have to drive to a center, and uh, they can do it slower, but it's still not physiologic. There, there is a nocturnal dialysis, which is hemodialysis, which has become popular in some countries such as Canada, and uh, you know, essentially you sleep on dialysis. That's always seemed a little bit worrisome to me to have your blood vessels hooked up and running blood flow at three or 400 milliliters a minute and be asleep. Yeah, that's uh, true. And some people have actually had patients come in and sleep in the dialysis unit all night long. <laughs> oh. So people have played around with all kinds of ways, but basically it's still dialysis. And, uh, you know, people have tried to make it better. There's actually a Uh, you probably know uh, there's been a big initiative in the kidney world called Kidney X. It's being um, sponsored by American uh, Society of Nephrology in conjunction with industry. And uh, I I can't say that I know that much about it. I've heard about it at meetings, but what they're trying to do is they're really trying to innovate. They're trying to get bright young people to go into nephrology and make things better, to make innovations. Uh, I mean, everybody knows that Patients hate coming to a dialysis unit three times a week and getting their blood clean and fluid removed. They hate it. For sure, man. uh, You know, it's been a very profitable business. And frankly, money talks, uh, as you know, especially in the United States. And so there hasn't been a lot of motivation to change it. But I think uh, it will change. But how long that's going to take, I don't know. Now, I have to say, when dialysis first came into being, I mean, it was a revolution. I mean, patients used to die of kidney disease. And uh, 1972, the Medicare uh, made chronic dialysis available to every American, essentially. It's still, to this day, the only chronic medical condition which is universally covered by Medicare. Universally. Okay. I mean, there are rules. You have to be on it for a certain amount of time unless you've got you know, a certain amount of uh, uh, insurance, et cetera. I let the social workers figure those things out. But essentially, everybody gets dialysis who needs it and wants it in the United States. I mean, this is uh, this is amazing, really. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember the committees. In fact, I actually sat in chairing a few of them uh, where we would discuss whether somebody was going to get chronic dialysis. Now, by the time I did it, it was really... It was a done deal. I mean, they were going to get it, but it was, you know, they continued having these meetings. But uh, that was in the early 1980s. I've been a nephrologist. I went into training in 79, finished in 81. But but back in the 70s, okay, in 60s, they would have these committees that would decide whether you're worthy of getting chronic kidney dialysis or whether you're going to die. Jesus And yes, exactly. Jesus. In fact, they called them God God committees. I mean, that was, um, you know, how they were spoken of. And I don't think anybody, I I don't think anybody thought this was a good idea. But, and then if you go back before that, if you go back before 1950s, I mean, people just died. where would we be without chronic dialysis? Really? I mean, kidney disease has been a growth industry it's probably flattening out now, but I mean, the last 50 years it's just gone up, 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 up. And that's mostly being fueled by diabetes and fueled by people living long enough to require it. I mean, a lot of our patients are requiring dialysis now in their 70s, 80s, and even occasionally 90s. Wow. And uh, so there's been this tremendous growth in the number of people being dialyzed. And, you know, all these people would have died before. I mean, dialysis has been incredible what it's done, but it's time to move on. You know, we need to prevent kidney failure and we need to have better ways of treating it. Now, of course, we haven't talked about transplant and that's a whole other thing. And of course, transplantation is, is the treatment of choice, but we need innovations in transplant too. I mean, we've had great strides. I mean, uh, when I was uh, training, I could tell a patient, the transplant surgeons wouldn't like it if I told them this, but I could tell them in all honesty that if you get a transplant, there's about a 50-50 chance it'll work and a 50-50 chance it'll fail, okay? Now virtually every transplant works. I mean, so there've been huge strides in transplantation too. Yeah. But, but it's still dialysis and transplantation. It's, you know, nothing earth shaking. Actually, the best thing probably we've come up with that really has been uh, a real sea change are these SGLT2 inhibitors, which seem to prevent kidney failure, not completely, but slow down uh, and help to prevent kidney failure in not only diabetic, but probably non-diabetic kidney disease as well.
1: So they're, they're in clinical use now? These oh, yes,
2: letters? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They all end with the um, letters F-L-O-Z-I-N or flozin. So you've got canical flozin, empical flozin, dapical flozin. <laughs> They're a little hard to pronounce, but they're all flozins.
1: Yeah. Gotcha. And then um, for people on them, What's observed uh, like can they is, is there any estimation of the delay of comorbidities or the delay of progression? how long
2: Yes, yes, well, they can cause about a forty percent reduction in virtually every outcome you want to look at, not just for the kidney but also for the heart, okay, so for the kidney, which is what I know better, they cause a forty percent reduction in the rate of progression of kidney disease, they cause a forty percent decline in the incidence of End stage kidney disease. So they're really they're really amazing drugs, and they're going to be used more and more. Now, uh, are they completely safe? They're quite safe. Uh, there are some serious side effects. Fortunately, they're rare. But patients can get life threatening diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, they can get life threatening and even fatal uh, Fortier's gangrene of the scrotum. That's probably directly related to uh, all the sugar in the urine. Because <laughs> these drugs prevent sugar uptake by the kidney cells. So you end up with a lot of sugar in the urine. And uh, it used to be thought that urinary tract infection was also more common, but that doesn't seem to be true. I think you have to select the patients pretty carefully. You know, even though I understand diabetic diabetologists are actually giving these drugs to type 1 diabetic patients now, uh, they're not approved for that. I think there's a risk of ketoacidosis when you do that. And even in type two diabetes, you can get ketoacidosis, but it's treatable. The uh, the 40-A's gangrene um, uh, could be bad luck or just not a good patient selection. I mean, patients have to be clean if they're gonna take SGLT2 and they can't be incontinent. I mean, you know, they can't be wetting themselves. I mean, they can't be in diapers. I mean, they, you know, they have to be bathing every day and they can't smell like urine uh, because then they're gonna get into trouble. Other than those things, My experience with them has been they've been quite safe.
1: Well, very good. Um, We've covered a lot of ground and we're out of time. What's the best way for people to follow up and to learn more about your activities? Where can they go?
2: Well, probably the internet (laughs) is probably, like everything else, probably the best way. If they want to go further than that, I suppose they could contact me.
1: Yeah, I didn't know if there's any particular papers or, uh, you know, uh, the general website, LOEOLA, people can look at. You know, what's your recommendation?
2: Well, sure. I mean, okay. One thing, you know, depending on what people are interested in, I mean, I have written some, some textbooks, uh, so, you know, they could look, I've written two editions of the handbook of nephrology. And I also wrote a little book called nephrology rounds, but that one I think is more for people in the field, but handbook of nephrology, I think is great for any trainees, uh, not just medical, but I think, uh, nursing, and other uh, associate health trainees would be interested in it, medical students as well. So, uh, you know, those books are available. You know, my papers, of course, uh, if you go into PubMed or Google or whatever, you know, you'll find any paper that I've written if they're interested in looking at that. What else could I tell you?
1: Yeah, I think that's good. So, yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast and you uh, know, a lot of knowledge to share. So thank you for being here.
2: Well, thanks. I know we we kind of touched on a number of different areas and, uh, and that's fine. It kind of gives you a little bit of uh, an idea of what I've done in my career because I have done basic and clinical science. I didn't mention just in 30 seconds, uh, I'm doing a big clinical trial now with a drug called pentoxifilin. It's P-E-N-T-O-X-I-F-Y-L-L-I-N-E. Okay, that's too much for any of us. So we call it PTX. This is a drug, uh, the brand name uh, in the past was Trental, T-R-E-N-T-A-L. And it was used as a drug for uh, peripheral vascular disease, for quadrication. Really not used for that anymore, but it's an approved drug. It's been around since the 1980s. And so to make a long story short, there were a lot of small studies that showed it could be beneficial in diabetic kidney disease. So we're doing a big clinical trial in the VA. We're going to have 40 VA sites, ultimately, and about 2,500 patients. So we're going to see whether this helps.
1: Well, very good. Well, again, David, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: Sure, sure. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please
1: click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
0: You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.